You are Locked On Buccaneers, your daily Tampa Bay Buccaneers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Forfeit the game before somebody else takes you out of the frame. Put your name to shame, cover up your face. You can't run the race, the pace is too fast, you just won't last. What's up and welcome to a special crossover edition of the Locked On Bucks and Locked On Falcons podcast. I am James Yarko, joined as usual by David Harrison. You can find everything that we're doing over at BucksNation.com and make sure you follow along on Twitter at LockedOnBucks, at JayYarko underscore Bucks, and at DH82 underscore Bucks. And joining us, of course, is the Locked On Falcons host, Aaron Freeman. Aaron, how you doing, my man? I'm doing good, man. The last time I talked to you guys, the Falcons uh, torpedoed the draft by beating the Bucks in Week 17 and, and dropping seven spots in the draft and missing out on Ed Oliver. So I look forward to talking with you about that uh, on today's episode. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, and, and and you bring up Ed Oliver. That was the big divide among Bucks fans. Was there was kind of a team Devin contingent and a team Oliver contingent and both sides agreed that if Quinn and Williams was there then we're all just going to band together and and hope that <laughs> Quinn and Williams is the pick but you know David and I were firmly in the in the team Devin White camp so we're real excited um about the the addition of that but before we uh, before we dive too much into the draft Aaron let's let's kind of recap a little bit what's been going on with the Atlanta Falcons this offseason and the first thing that I personally want to know is yeah, Dan Quinn got rid of his coordinators, and you guys bring back former Buccaneers head coach Dirk Cutter to be the offensive coordinator. What's kind of the general feeling about the return of Dirk Cutter uh, and, and rejoining Matt Ryan there in Atlanta? Well, the feeling is a little mixed because, you know, it, it basically Steve Sarkeesian had two lackluster years as the offensive coordinator. And I think one of the biggest knocks on Sarkeesian was that his inexperience in terms of play calling at the professional level and coaching at the professional level often got the better of him. And so I think for some, you know, Dirk Cutter, who's basically been an offensive coordinator and, and of course, a, a coach in Tampa Bay for a couple of years, but been an offensive coordinator for, you know, a decade or more in the NFL, sort of having that experience is a positive but then sort of on the flip side, you know, you go back to sort of Dirk Cutter's days in Atlanta when he was the offensive coordinator from 2012 to 2014. And the style of offense that he ran during those years is very different from the style of offense that Dan Quinn wants to have, which is, you know, a, a derivation of sort of that West Coast Kyle Shanahan play action heavy offense. Now, to be fair to Cutter, they ran, you know, a lot of elements of that you know, when he was calling plays for Jameis Winston in Tampa Bay over the last couple of years. So it's not like it's completely a foreign concept to him. But one of the questions is really sort of does sort of what Dan Quinn wants to be, this sort of physical, you know, ground and pound sort of run first team that generates its big plays off of play action. Does that mesh with Dirk Cutter, who at least in his previous stint in Atlanta had a tendency to be a very sort of you know, pass-centric, let's go three wide receivers, let's spread teams out, and let's sort of dink and dunk our way down the field. Um, And so it's going to be an interesting mix to sort of see if those two coaches are on the same page this year. 
Yeah, and it's it's funny you bring that up because when Cutter was in Tampa, he very much preached, you know, we're a run first football team and and kind of had that mantra that, you know, we're gonna we're gonna attack with big plays, but we're we're gonna run the ball first. And then he had a tendency to pull his running back off of the field or he would go long stretches without running the ball at all. Very high percentage of you know passing on first downs and, and, and things like that. So yeah, the the thing with Cutter is, is it sounds like everything that Quinn wants to do is the kind of stuff that Dirk Cutter talked about doing, but never did. Exactly. Yeah, you know, he 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 never practiced what he preached. So it'll be it'll be an interesting dynamic for sure. Um, you know, seeing how seeing how that that goes down in Atlanta. But um, you know, talk a little bit about kind of the the moves that the Falcons made in in free agency, some key additions, some key losses. Well, you know, they lost Tevin Coleman. He he went to San Francisco. They sort of revamped their cornerback group. They revamped their offensive line. They lost a, a player that I'm sure you guys have very fond memories of, a kicker in Matt Bryant. So they lost some players, uh, and, you know, they have some young guys, particularly at the cornerback position with uh, Isaiah Oliver and DeMonte Casey, expected to sort of step into starting roles there. They uh, drafted a couple of corners. Uh, they have Ido Smith, who was their fourth-round pick. Last year, poised to step up into Tevin Coleman's role. Of course, they invested heavily in the draft with the offensive line, but also went out and signed guys like Jamon Carpenter and James, uh, Jamon Brown and James Carpenter to address some of their offensive line issues. And of course, they have Giorgio Tavecchio to sort of fill in for Matt Bryant's shoes. So I think for all all cases, the Falcons have some options, have some younger. You know, they basically got younger at a lot of those positions in the hope that they can get some more sort of long term value at each of those groups. And, I, you know, I think I feel like there's a sense of optimism that um, whether or not those younger players wind up being upgrades over the players that they're replacing remains to be seen. But I do think there's some optimism that they should be at least, you know, close, if not as good uh, as their predecessors were at those positions. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process, but today hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash locked on. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get the quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash locked on. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash locked on. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, I'll tell you, Aaron, when I look at the the Falcons offense right now, I mean, the offensive line, I'm sure we're going to talk draft, so we'll get to the offensive line here in a minute, but... I'm I'm a little bit worried for you guys because Devontae Freeman, I think he's an extremely talented running back when he's healthy. But coming off of a year where he only played in two games and then leaning on a guy like Ito Smith, um, I mean, there's just not a lot of 2018 production coming back in that backfield. 
how do you how comfortable are you with those two guys being the main guys moving forward? Well, um, you know, I have some confidence that Devontae Freeman will have a sort of bounce back year. I know sort of there's questions over whether that I should have that amount of confidence given sort of how injuries have sort of um, hurt him the last couple of seasons. You know, I think losing Tevin Coleman, you lose a, a proven option. And I think Edo Smith can replace a lot of the production that Tevin Coleman uh, brought to the table, particularly in terms of, you know, running the football. Um, but I think where Smith is going to be lacking is sort of having that X factor element in the passing game. Now, fortunately, um, or unfortunately, I guess you could say, is that the Falcons didn't really utilize Coleman a lot in the passing game the last two seasons under Steve Sarkeesian. So technically, they're not really losing a whole lot by if Edo Smith doesn't sort of, uh, you know, fill in those shoes. But it is one of those things where, you know, having that guy as sort of the fourth or fifth option in your passing attack, uh, as the Falcons had sort of when they're at their peak offensively, uh, really makes this Falcons offense a lot harder to defend. And, you know, Edo Smith, while I think is going to be a valuable pass catcher for this team, just doesn't scare defenses in the same way that Tevin Coleman would, where you could just put him, you know, line him up in the slot and just have him roast linebackers or roast safeties and even roast cornerbacks for some big plays as the Falcons did several years ago. But again, that wasn't necessarily a big element of the Falcons offense the last two years. So um, it's something that they missed in the last two years. But, you know, they were still able to function offensively without having it. So I don't know if it's a huge gaping loss. OK, OK. Now, I was researching something different today and I stumbled upon a CBS Sports column, which speculated that the Atlanta Falcons could be a landing spot for Jay Ajayi uh, as early as, you know, not confirmed rumors, but as early as tomorrow, because tomorrow the signings don't count against compensatory uh, equations and all that for the next year. What do you think about uh, the potential of Jay Ajayi landing in Atlanta? Yeah, he's a player that I've mentioned in the past. Um, you know, in terms of, I think, you know, a lot of people sort of thought going into the draft, the Falcons needed to add a running back. They did wind up drafting one, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, it's one of those things where, to me, I think adding another rookie to the mix, because the Falcons have now drafted running backs for three consecutive years. And I don't know if those guys are necessarily really moving the needle in terms of, you know, solidifying your depth behind Devontae Freeman. So signing a veteran like Jay Ajayi has made a lot of sense to me. If the the concern is you don't know what you're, whether Freeman's going to be healthy for the entire season. So bringing in a veteran like Jay Ajayi makes a lot of sense. Obviously, the big issue with Jay Ajayi is durability himself. So, you know, signing another guy that has knee issues as Ajayi has uh, shown over his career, uh, may not necessarily be sort of the smartest call, but I do think it makes a lot of sense that the closer we get to uh, the season, the Falcons certainly should be, you know, sniffing around some of these veteran running backs uh, as a sort of a possible emergency option in the event of injuries. Yeah, and running back is a position that Bucks fans are certainly uh, disappointed hasn't been addressed as of yet, but the the kind of the last thing that I have uh, I have for you is how excited are you and other Falcons fans that Quan Alexander is out of the division? Um, I should ask you how excited are you guys that uh, you seemingly replaced Quan Alexander with Devin White and and um, Dion Buchanan? But yeah, Alexander always had great games against the Falcons. It seemed. And it's it's weird because certain Bucks players seem to be Falcon killers, but 
tend to not necessarily show up with that sort of level of consistency against other teams, Jameis Winston being a very prominent example of that. Um, but I, I felt like Quan Alexander was extremely good against the Falcons and, and good against other teams, but not necessarily that type of dominant playmaker that he seemed to be uh, against Atlanta. So certainly I'm not going to miss him, you know, snatching those interceptions and, and creating those turnovers that he did a number of times over the years. So, uh, I, you know, uh, I guess you can say I'm, I'm pretty happy that he's no longer with us. But unfortunately, I think the Bucs uh, probably wound up got, getting uh, two other playmakers, uh, particularly with White, uh, replacing Alexander. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And of course, you mentioned uh, Buchanan. He was one of the big signings for the Bucks. Yeah, and, and they did lose some pieces. They lost Quan. They lost Adam Humphreys. They traded Deshaun Jackson. But they bring in guys like Dion Buchanan and uh, and, and Shaquille Barrett. You know, on on the defensive side of the ball. You know, they they bring in Brashad Perryman on the offensive side to kind of be that speed guy and hopefully help him continue to revitalize his career. They bring in. Uh, Andre Ellington to help out in the running backs room, which uh, again is a position that Bucks fans are a little disappointed they haven't addressed yet. But you know, overall, with with Bruce Arians at the helm, there's a lot of fun that the Buccaneers are going to be able to have. So, you know, Bucks fans are, you know, I use the term cautiously optimistic because it seems like every year, you know, these they make this big splash and Bucks fans get all excited and. And then they fall flat on their face and, and and really disappoint. So it'll it'll definitely create a very interesting dynamic adding Bruce Arians' brain to the NFC South to go along with Quinn and Rivera and and Schmuck Payton. I'm I'm curious from my perspective looking at the Bucks sort of offseason plans leading going into free agency, it seemed like they were sort of stuck with the choice of keeping Quan Alexander or keeping Donovan Smith. And clearly, they seemingly chose Donovan Smith. I'm curious, what do you guys think? If that, do you think that's the right choice that the Bucks made this offseason? Uh, I, for one, do. I mean, I love Quan Alexander. I'm a big fan of Quan's, and a big. I was a huge advocate of hoping that he would stay, but I kind of mentioned from time to time that I just I had this underlying feeling that it just wasn't going to happen. And then finding out how much the 49ers gave him uh, to leave Tampa just kind of you know confirmed all of those suspicions. And, and the reason being is. Uh, and I know a lot of Buccaneers fans are not going to agree with what I just said, but that's fine. Ryan Jensen, when he came on the show earlier in the offseason for us, uh, the Buccaneers starting center for anybody out there who doesn't know, he made a very good point. And that point was, that, and he acknowledged that they struggled at times. They all had their struggles and they all you know had issues. But you can't have an offensive system, a passing game especially, that's as prolific as it was without an offensive line that is at least doing some things right and doing some things that are positive. And, you know, it really kind of gave me a new way of looking at it. And I agreed with them. And kind of from that point forward, I kind of went, I moved forward in the offseason saying, hey, you know what? If this offensive line comes back, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. Now, we found out since that, you know, former starting right guard Caleb Beninock is moving back to tackle, you know, as a backup, most likely. And the team's going to have a new starting right guard. But if you rewind to 2018, they had Ali Marpet flipping yet again to another position on the offensive line. They had Ryan Jensen coming in as the center. They had Caleb Benenock coming in as right guard. So your three offensive linemen in the middle of your of your line are all playing new positions for the first time, and they're all playing together for the first time. So there's a lot. And then the drama between Ryan Fitzpatrick and James Winston, suspension, benching, so on and so forth. I mean, 
I don't think anybody on the team ever really got on solid footing, to be honest with you, in 2018, despite how the season started. So coming into this season, having that consistency on the line, they're only going to replace one guy. And if my prediction is right, it's going to be a veteran guy who's got experience in the league. He's got experience with this offense. So he's going to be able to assimilate a little bit faster than your normal rookie or your, you know, a veteran who doesn't have experience in the system. I think that it was better and wiser for the future of this team and for the win now mentality that Bruce Arians has to keep the offensive line intact and find a replacement for Quan Alexander on the defense. Now, you, it sounds like you think the Bucks did enough on their offensive line because I know that's been a problem area for the Bucks for the last several seasons. Do you feel like they could have done more or should have done more this offseason to upgrade that unit? Uh, I definitely felt like, and I know a lot of people felt like, the Buccaneers would probably address uh, the interior offensive line, draft a guard on day two of the NFL draft. And we actually had uh, J.C. Cornell from the Draft Network come on and discuss his only mock draft that he put out. And he divulged to us that the team was looking at targeting an offensive lineman, specifically a guard, in the third round, kind of depending on how the board felt. They didn't necessarily have a guy in mind, but they knew they wanted to try to go after one of those guys. And just judging from the way they drafted, obviously, the board didn't fall uh, apparently the way they wanted to, where they felt there was enough value when they did take uh, take players in the third round to justify pulling the trigger on interior offensive linemen. And again, it's it's kind of one of those things where consistency is 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 important and whether it's a rookie or whether it's a veteran you're replacing the right guard no matter what's happening so which one is easier to to kind of fill in you know that's that's one of those questions and then how does it impact the rest of the team obviously there was a focus on the secondary and the defensive side of the ball which gauging from where both sides of the ball ended last year statistically speaking that's the right side of the ball to, to keep your eyes on is is the defense because uh, James and I, we've said on Lockdown Bucks, and I know that pretty much every writer of Bucks Nation agrees. If the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have an average defense last year, just average, they're probably pushing for a playoff spot, if not making the playoffs. So that's how good the offense was, really in total, if you look at it. But uh, focusing on the defense, in my mind, was the right was the right thing to do. I don't know about James. Oh yeah, yeah. I I think defense was the right way to go because that absolutely was the the weak point. Um, you know, you don't have, I, I shouldn't say you don't, you shouldn't have a top five offense and not make the playoffs. Like you have to have a historically bad defense, which they did in order to fail that miserably when your offense can put up that many points. Now, you know, turning my attention to the draft, I'm curious, sort of looking at all those investments that the Bucks made on defense side of the ball sort of with their first five picks, and obviously they took Devin White at the top of the draft and then took three defensive backs with their next three selections and then wound up picking Anthony Nelson in round four. Um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing White is going to be your pick for this to answer this question, but who are the guys that you're expecting to sort of impact right away? And I'm curious, specifically with White, uh, due to the presence of guys like Levante David and adding uh, Dion Buchanan, is this a situation where the Bucks are going to try to get White on the field as much as possible, as soon as possible? Or do you guys expect them to bring him along a little bit more slowly just because you have two veterans ahead of him? Oh, I, I think it's all systems go. Devin White is going to be out there, you know, as, as much as humanly possible. The thing about what Todd Bowles is going to be able to do now with guys like Buchanan and, and Shaq and then adding uh, Devin White is it. 
it allows them to be able to do a lot of different things without showing anything. They have such versatile talent on that side of the ball at this point in time. We had uh, uh, Carmen Vitale from Buccaneers.com on, and she said watching some of these you know, OTAs and, and things like that, she goes, I don't understand how anyone can watch film of a Todd Bowles defense and have any clue what they're they're seeing because he disguises everything so well and you never get the same look twice that it, it's going to be a nightmare for opposing offensive coordinators. So, yeah, I don't think there's going to be any bringing Devin White along slowly. I think it's you know, he is the guy. You, you don't take a guy in the top five, especially at a position that normally isn't drafted that high, and then not have him be – you know, the man. So as far as the secondary, you know, obviously they didn't like what they saw and they wanted these guys that were big, physical, lengthy, and athletic to be able to do whatever it is that the Bulls wants to accomplish. And, you know, guys that they had brought in in the past just weren't cutting it. So, you know, you can, you can make the argument, you know, the secondary will be better with a better pass rush. Well, the pass rush will also be better if the corners aren't giving 15 yards of cushion and allowing Breeze or or Matt Ryan to, you know, slant them to death all the way down the field, utilizing these big, fast receivers that we have in the NFC South. Okay. Now, it's something that I, I noticed, you know, one of the one of the people that works for SB Nation, um, She's a big Falcons fan, and she was about to lose her mind when you guys kept drafting guards. So, um, overall, I mean, kind of, how did you, how did you like the way the Falcons drafted? Did you feel that you know maybe it was, you know, there were some misses there, or, or do you kind of like the strategy that they went in with? Well, look, I was all about the Falcons investing in their offensive line. One of the things we talked about a lot on Locked on Falcons really over the last couple of years is the Falcons' continued decision to punt on their offensive line. They really have not invested really any significant assets in terms of the draft in trying to upgrade their offensive line. They, by and large, just settled for veteran players. And that seemingly seemed what they were going to do when they went out and got Jamon Brown and James Carpenter this offseason. But one of the things I talked about quite a bit in the lead up to the draft on Lockdown Falcons was I just don't see those two players really moving the needle and really being upgrades at the guard position. And the same thing goes with Ty Sambrello taking over for Ryan Schrader at the right tackle position. Sambrello has sort of been a career backup, a sort of a, a swing tackle that, you know, finished 2018 relatively strong, played well down the stretch. But prior to that had been a guy that was, you know, a marginal sort of NFL player that was sort of barely hanging on to NFL rosters, both in Atlanta and Denver. And so, you know, for the Falcons to bet on those guys to sort of fix their offensive line issues seemed like a bad bet. So when they went into the draft and, and went, you know, back-to-back offensive linemen with their top two picks, I loved it. Now, if you would ask me, you know, would Chris Lindstrom and, and Caleb McGarry have been my top two choices for the Falcons to do that? Probably not. But at the same time, I think both of those players are really solid players. I think both of those players really fit what the Falcons want to do, which goes back to what I said earlier, which is be more of this physical football team. Caleb McGarry was one of the better run-blocking offensive tackles in this draft class, and I think it's really going to add something to this um, offense 
with that moving forward, I think Chris Lindstrom is one of the more polished and, and more technical guards in this draft. And a lot of people uh, think that he was the best guard you know, in terms of pure guards, uh, not necessarily the guys that are tackles that teams want to move to guard, like guys like Cody Ford and Jonah Williams. But in terms of the pure guard, you know, a lot of people thought Christian was the best. So I, I like both picks. Um, you know, I know a lot of Falcon fans and, and a lot of people, and I know who you're talking about, who you were referring to earlier. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of people sort of were hoping that the Falcons would really invest in their defensive line and continue to invest and upgrade that unit. And they really didn't in the draft. And I, I feel like, you know, they sort of were kind of stuck making a choice between, you know, fixing their offense or fixing their defensive line and really trying to improve their trenches. And I don't necessarily know if they could really find a way to sort of do both this off season, at least based off of what the choices they made after free agency. Um, so I feel like given that the Falcons all, you know, given this team's success is lies with their offense being the best possible offense in the league, I think choosing to solidify the offensive line makes a lot more sense than necessarily uh, expecting their defense to sort of carry them. I don't think a, a couple of early round picks were going to really move the needle as far as their defense goes, because the strength of the defense is, you know, some of the young players that they've invested in in recent years, basically coming back and having healthy seasons coming off of injuries and whatnot. So if those guys can do that and their defense will be solid this year, not great, but solid. And, uh, you know, adding a couple of rookies would have been nice, but I don't necessarily know if that was, the necessary move in, in terms of going into the season. Cause you guys know if your offensive line isn't up to par, you know, it's going to be really hard for your offense to function at its peak efficiency. And that's really what the Falcons need to have happen in 2019. If they're going to sort of reach the heights that they want to reach this season. Yeah. You're, I think, I think you're, uh, you're spot on with that, Aaron. I mean, so uh, I mentioned it with with Bill on our on our episode yesterday that I'm doing a written series to kind of go along with these podcasts over at Bucks Nation, and one of the things I, I identified is the weakest area I see for each team in the NFC South, uh, each rival in the NFC South for the Buccaneers, and the offensive line is the one that I identified for the, for the Falcons just because of how much turnover you have. Um, I like Lindstrom as a pros as a prospect. Uh, I think 14 was a little high for me personally, but. I could see where the Falcons were going when they took him and, and the purpose behind it. And then Caleb McGarry at 31. I mean, I'm kind of with you there. I mean, he, he's a good kid. Don't get me wrong. And I actually remember he was the guy when we were in Indianapolis for the combine. I was actually watching Jonah Williams talking and just because of what Caleb McGarry was saying and telling his story of kind of where he came from. I actually I mean, I was holding a recorder up to Jonah Williams, looking at Caleb McGarry, watching him speak. So Jonah looked over at me during that time. He probably thought I was being pretty rude, but uh, I think I think he'll be all right with his first round paycheck. Um, I'm sure, he'll be fine. Yeah. So Caleb is definitely a guy. I mean, I like Caleb. I'm definitely pulling for Caleb to have a successful NFL career. But yeah, man. I mean, pick 31 was just a little too rich for me. I I would have thought you go, you know, with the with the Falcons would go with a guy like Dalton Reisner there, or you know, any number of other guys. But uh, Caleb McGarry still. I mean, if you're looking for a strong personality and a player who's just going to kill himself if you ask him to, to to make your team successful that's definitely what the falcons got but i just i worry man because dirt cutter you know you guys know his offense as well as we do uh matt ryan and this is what i wrote in the column is matt ryan needs a minimum of three seconds in a clean pocket to make dirt cutters offense really work consistently and with as much turnover as you guys are looking at on this offensive line and not having tevin coleman whew, buddy 
Um, I hope it works out, but I'm not uh, I'm not completely confident that they're going to be able to put it together. But I mean, uh, I've, I've been wrong before. Um, where are some areas that when you see the Bucks, where are some areas that you've got question marks uh, looking at 2019 for our team? Well, you know, I think it's going to be interesting because you have two talented corners um, in um, Carlton Davis and Vernon Hargreaves, two guys that should on paper fit this Todd Bowles defense. And you added a couple more guys. Some, you know, Sean Bunting was a guy that was on the Falcons radar uh, in the draft. So, you know, I think to make this Todd Bowles defense work, you have to, you know, be able to play man-to-man coverage. And it's going to be interesting looking at this Bucks team because uh, I'm, I'm curious how confident you guys are that these Bucks corners, uh, and particularly, you know, playing some of these wide receivers that they'll face in the NFC South, as well as other ones they'll see this upcoming season. How confident are you that this, you know, this cornerback group that was arguably one of the weakest unit parts of the Bucks roster uh, this past season is going to be up to par um, to be able to make the Bulls defense effective? Yeah, I, I hope they basically, I hope they did what they wanted to do and they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish in the draft. Because if they were, and that was something that Bruce Arians had already talked about that, you know, he and his coaches had already sat down and not only watched film from the season, but they watched film from mini camp and training camp and every single practice to break down and analyze these guys. So Obviously, if they weren't seeing what they wanted to see, they went out and and got players that they wanted to get. But you have an incredibly young secondary there. I mean, Vernon Hargraves is the veteran leadership, and he's missed the last two seasons with injury. So you look at guys like MJ Stewart, who was drafted as a corner and got moved to safety. You look at at the starting safeties. You have third year player Justin Evans and second year player Jordan Whitehead and. Now they've drafted Edwards out of Kentucky and, you know, they, they start to to bring in all these new pieces. And it, of course it has fans up in arms. You know, we just used day two picks on, on secondary players last year. Why are we doing it again? Well, because you have a regime change and Todd Bowles knows what he wants out of his defense. And obviously they don't have the, the size or the physicality that he was looking for. Will one of these guys end up, moving to the outside so that Hargraves can go to his strength on, on the inside, maybe. But Hargraves was also a lot stronger at, at press man than he was with these 10, 12, 15-yard cushions that Mike Smith was was pushing on these guys. So it'll be it'll be interesting. It's definitely going to take a little while to to see how things are starting to to shape up just because we don't know exactly what Todd Bowles is going to want to do or or what he's going to want to accomplish with the secondary or, or the defense in general. So it's definitely going to be an exciting offseason to kind of watch as things progress. Now, one other question I have for you guys is what, what's going on with Jared McCoy? It's, at first, it's like he's not going to be there, then he's going to be there. Now it's back to he's not going to be there. Uh, mm. What are your guys' thoughts on sort of what is going on with a player that arguably, you know, for the last several years has been the sort of the face of the franchise. Yeah. Uh, James and I have been pretty consistent. I think most of the off season that we just don't feel like Gerald McCoy is going to be back. Um, we don't think he, he fits in what, what they're wanting to do, whether it's a monetary thing or, or whatever. Uh, I just, we, we just get the feeling that he and the Buccaneers are not on the same page for any, for whatever reason. And it's just not going to work out. Now, 
that's not going to necessarily close the door on the potential of Gerald McCoy, you know, walking into the Buccaneers facility and, and suiting up in 2019 for the team. But as of right now, I mean, they got to do something because they can't afford their draft picks as it stands today. Uh, so somebody's leaving. And uh, we saw the the idea, James, earlier on Twitter uh, today, which is Monday as we're recording, thrown out there about trading a guy like uh, Cameron Brait, which is a player that we've we've honestly floated out there. But we floated him out there as a trading option during or before the draft to get some more draft capital in this year's class. Um, if they're trade him now, you're looking at bring on another player or you know 2020 draft capital, which uh, is fine, I guess, but doesn't help for for right now. Until Gerald McCoy steps on the field or until he steps into the Buccaneers facility, I'm not going to believe he's on his way back. However, you know, I don't think either James or I could could say definitively 100% that he's absolutely not coming back without, you know, making a leap, which I know James is a little bit braver on his leaps than I am. But yeah, man, I mean, $13 million, cutting that salary and then keeping their their free or their uh, draft picks and then potentially finding a guy out there in free agency somewhere still waiting, waiting to sign with a team on a one-year deal to kind of come in and plug that hole a little bit. That seems like the way to go. That seems like it's the way it's going to go for me. But May 14th is uh, is mandatory minicamp. So something's got to happen before then because Gerald's not going to start taking fines to be away from the team. And so May 14th, Gerald McCoy's either going to be there and now we start talking about him sticking around or something's going to happen between now and then. Uh, we, we'll, we'll just have to see. He gone. <laughs> okay there you have it two words summarize the whole thing okay so I, I'm, I'm curious to see where he lands because he was a guy that had he been cut earlier this offseason a lot of Falcon fans including myself were very eager to see him get cut mm-hmm. and possibly land in Atlanta um, it sounds like they're probably going to try to get something for him which if they do wind up you know deciding to trade him only then obviously trading him to Atlanta is, is pretty much a non-starter. So hopefully, uh, I guess sitting here, if May 14th is a hard deadline, hopefully, you know, I can go around to, you know, 30 other clubs and disconnect their phone lines so that they can't get a trade in <laughs> and they'll be forced to cut them and maybe the Falcons will then scoop them up. That's really interesting of you to say. And I bring this up because I would say, and you can make a very good case, that Gerald McCoy is the most polarizing and divisive player among Buccaneers fandom. So you and, and from what you're saying, Falcons fans obviously view him in a very positive light as far as his talent is concerned. Would it surprise you to know that there are Buccaneers fans that absolutely despise him because they say he can't play or he's not any good or he disappears too often, or he doesn't get enough sacks. It does not surprise me, uh, James, because uh, I think there are players within the Falcons building that you pro- you guys would probably be surprised. Like, wait, Falcon fans don't like him? Falcon fans are polarized on him? I think this is just a universal truth of, of sports fans, that even players that from the outside looking in, you're like, oh, that guy's good. And then you get within the community of that fan base, and then you will find a lot of very vocal people be like, oh, that guy's terrible. And then you will find a lot of very vocal people that agree with sort of the general consensus. I think, you know, at least from my perspective with Gerald McCoy, he is a declining player, but I still think he's a guy that can give you value, maybe not $13 million worth of value, but certainly, you know, five, six, seven, 
uh, $8 million, I don't think would be a bad price tag for any team, particularly a team like the Falcons, who are desperately looking for upgrades on their defensive line to sort of uh, be a short-term solution for some of the issues that the, the Falcons have had over the years. Yeah, and okay. I think that's, that's fair. No, it's definitely fair. I think that's part of the problem, and I know NFL Network kind of alluded to the same thing today. I don't, I don't think Joe McCoy is interested in taking less money now. If he's cut, then obviously he really doesn't have that choice anymore. Um, so there's, you know, he may not be willing to come down from 13 million for the Bucks, but he may be willing to play for, you know, like you said, eight for the Falcons. And that's kind of one thing that Bill and I, when we talked about that on on his episode yesterday or his recording yesterday, I'm not sure when he's going to publish it, but that might be a part of this. That might be part of the reason that Jason Light and Bruce Arians have kind of been hesitant to pull the trigger because they see that really either New Orleans or Atlanta, both of you guys could afford him and could use him. And I mean, how many times you look at Richard Sherman, you know, leaving Seattle, going to San Francisco uh, on really kind of a bargain deal for the 49ers just so he could rub it in the Seahawks face twice a year. Um, Gerald McCoy with as much blood and sweat and, and energy as he's poured into the Buccaneers uh, franchise. I, I, you know, if he gets cut, then I think that Atlanta and New Orleans would be the first two calls that he would probably take and two visits that he would probably make uh, to, to see if he wants to, to go on a revenge tour. Um, but as far as, I mean, I think, I don't think James or I don't think either of us are anti Gerald McCoy guys. It's just, like I said, my, in, in my standpoint, and our, our listeners have heard me say this before. He's just he's tied to way too much failure in this franchise. And I feel like the the relationship, the tie between the Buccaneers and Gerald McCoy has just gotten toxic um, for both sides. And I feel like they both need to move on. Gerald, I'm not saying Gerald McCoy is the cause of that failure necessarily. He's he's most often been the, one of the few bright spots on tif- on failing teams. But when you think back at Gerald McCoy's time as a Buccaneer, he's unfortunately going to be one of those players that goes down in franchise history as a guy who's really good on a lot of really bad teams. And I just, I feel like it's just healthier for everybody to just cut ties and move on. It's fair. I'm glad we could have this conversation so that when we get into the season, we can sort of actually, you know, see whether or not these additions, these offseason moves uh, wind up living up to the hype because you guys know in the offseason, everybody is starting to, you know, uh, buy their sort of Super Bowl tickets in terms of all the improvements that their team is so-called made. But we all know that at the end of the day, only a handful of teams actually do improve and a lot of teams sort of fall flat in their face. And I'm eager to see sort of whether the Bucks, who have been a perennial pick for myself of, oh, the Bucks are going to do some damage this year in the NFC South. And they always seem to not live up to that hype. So I, I you know, I'm at a point where I will finally believe it when I see it. Um, but again, on paper, I think they have had a good off season and we'll have to sort of see if the Falcons can also sort of bounce back to being one of the premier teams in the NFC that they look to be and were, you know, a couple of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, by time the, uh, by time the Falcons and Bucks meet up, we're, we're going to have a pretty good idea as to where some of these <clears throat> new additions have, um, have established themselves or, or which ones have kind of fallen by the wayside because these teams don't play each other for the first time until November. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Falcons have a interesting schedule because I can't remember what order the Bucks game is, but they have five straight divisional games, and, and the Bucks are in, I think, one of those games. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting at that point in the year when we do our another crossover. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and by then the Buccaneers will actually be playing a home game because, you know, the Bucs <laughs> go 49 days before they play a game in Raymond James Stadium. Mm-hmm. There you go. So the schedule maker is not kind to the NFC South this year. The Next Falcons year. have five straight divisional games? Yeah. That is crazy. Man, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Except against Tampa. I mean, that's going to be an entertaining five weeks, but that is a, that is, I mean, divisional games are just, they're more intense They're I mean, I imagine as a player, they probably take a little bit more out of you because of the extra preparation. I mean, these teams know each other. Like you have to prepare just a little bit extra, I think. And, and the intensity is always just a little bit higher. Yeah, man. Woo. Rough. Just which handing means, stuff to the Saints. Which means the Falcons will either come out of that stretch as the hottest team in football, or it's going yeah. to torpedo their season. Yeah. What a yeah, wild yeah. move. We're going to have to make sure Ross gives a shout-out to the NFL for setting the Saints up with uh, such a, a stacked division this year, just doing everything they can to hold everybody down. Man. Yeah, um, I'm sure we'll be chatting. I'll be talking with Ross a little bit later. So, yeah, I'm, I'm eager to sort of see where he's his head is at in terms of the rest of the division. All right, gentlemen. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode because we're also up against the clock. So... For all of you listening, thank you so much. Make sure you're checking out everything that's going on with Aaron over at Locked On Falcons and on Twitter at FalcFans. That's F-A-L-C-F-A-N, FalcFan. And uh, it's FalcFan.com, right? FalcFans.com, yeah. FalcFans.com. You can check out everything that David and I are doing over at BucksNation.com. Follow along on Twitter at LockedOnBucks, at JRCO underscore Bucks, and at DH82 underscore Bucks. Hope you all have a safe, wonderful, enjoyable day, and thanks so much for joining us right here on a special edition of Crossover Tuesday.